18 and 21 through 28. To give a human example, brothers and sisters, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the word of the Lord. God, we thank you for this time to come to your word. Lord, we just pray simply as we sang that, Lord, that your good grace would be apparent to us, that you would give us clear minds and pure hearts to receive uh, your truth, that you would give us minds that are attentive and focused to your word, that you would reveal to us all of the religious trappings and messages of culture that we cling so tightly to that create in us uh, a false gospel that we trust in at times. Would you help us to see the good news of who you are, Christ, and the faith that you have given us as a gift? It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I know that if you have been here with us for some time, there's a shared sentiment among many of you. And that is this, you're going to come here each and every week, and every week there'll be different music, and we have different worship leaders that have been rotating as well, and it's different music, but it's always great, and that there's going to be different people, because we live in Miami, and Miami's transient, and there's people coming and going, and jobs take you in and out of town, people are constantly moving here, but there's the same place right here, same time, 5 p.m., and it feels like, and I've heard this, Same message. How many of you feel like it's the same message each and every week? You don't have to raise your hand. If you feel like that, you're right. It's the same message every week, and it's going to continue to be the same message every single week until Jesus comes back. That's how it's going to be, because here's the thing. Regardless of where you're at in your journey of faith, whether you're just beginning to explore faith, you're asking questions of faith, you're full of doubts, you're wrestling through those things, or you have kind of resolved some of your doubts and you've come to the place where you say, I believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior and Lord and I'm standing in a mature and sound faith. All of us bring something into the room and we bring too much of it. And that thing is ourselves. 
all of us bring too much of ourselves into the equation constantly. And we don't bring enough of a focus on Jesus. And so the message each and every week is Christ and his grace and the free gift of faith that has been given to us as an inheritance. And that's going to be the same message because we constantly bring too much of ourselves into the room. And it makes sense because every single thing that we interact with outside of God's word and outside of his church is preaching a very different message. Every different medium that's delivering you content is telling you this, focus on yourself. Focus on yourself and you can accomplish your dreams. You have adversity, you just gotta get disciplined, you need to get motivated, you need to write a plan out and you need to attack it. And when you do, you can accomplish anything. The only thing that is standing in the way of your dreams is you. How many of you have heard these kind of quotes and statements before, right? Every different social media, you know, medium that you interact with, every single article, every website is preaching this message. Focus on yourself. You can do it. Just do it. And I understand that. You know, you go on Instagram and, and you scroll. If you just scroll for a little bit, you're going to see an inspirational quote in about 15 seconds. It's just going to be there. You go on YouTube, you listen to a motivational speech, and you kind of get in the rabbit hole of YouTube if you have YouTube Premium when it keeps doing the video over, and you're like, well, I've listened to four motivational speeches. I don't even know what, but I'm jacked up. I'm ready to go. Your friends are encouraging you and saying you're going to conquer your goals. You're going to take up charge of everything in your career. You're going to fix that relationship. And we're all inspired by these things. Nothing wrong with that. I, I like a good inspirational quote. I like a motivational speech. Like I was saying, sometimes I'll listen to a motivational speech, and I don't even know what I'm being motivated towards, but I'm ready to go. Like, I, the passion, the enthusiasm, I'm ready to conquer something. But what happens is because we interact with that, and that's so common in our culture, and we're receiving it, it's being preached to us time and time again, to focus on yourself, we bring it here. And what happens is subconsciously, we kind of like treat Sunday night and, and church and God's people coming together and also interacting with God's word, corporately or privately, like a test. Like God's kind of testing you. As if he's saying, listen, here are some things very clearly that I want you to do. If you do them, then I'm going to bless you. All those things you want, all those dreams you want to accomplish, all those goals that you've set before you, if you really want to accomplish them, there's a test you're going to be presented. So make sure on Sunday you get the nugget that you need to apply. Make sure you, you begin to do the things I'm telling you to do. And once you begin to step into those, you're going to see blessing come your way. Here's a formula that we think is how it operates because we bring too much of ourself into the equation. We think it goes like this. I do fill in the blank and then God will bless, bring fulfillment, fix that relationship, enable me to conquer that goal in my career. As long as I do this, then God will do this. But that is not the gospel. That's not the good news of grace through faith. But we bring that in, and we think it's that way, even subconsciously at times. How many of you have been in a hot tub in the snow? How many? Okay, if you haven't, it's amazing. You need to do it. You need to find snow, like really far away from here, and find a hot tub and go in. It's amazing. You get in the hot tub, and it's like freezing cold outside. You see the snow, and you're like, this is where I want to be forever. And you're in there, and here's what happens though, after a period of time. You're in there for 5, 10, 15 minutes. Your body begins to acclimate. 
And it doesn't feel the same as it once felt when you first got in. You realize your hair's frozen. You're like, this is weird. This is probably not good. And your body's kind of getting used to the water. And so you come up with a good idea. How many of you had this good idea? I'm going to go jump in the snow. Great idea, right? So you jump out in the snow. You're in the snow. It's freezing cold because it's snow. And you're like, maybe this wasn't a good idea, but I'm going back in the hot tub. So you get covered in the snow. You're like, I'm resetting my body temperature. And you jump back in the hot tub. And what happens? you immediately realize you made a horrible decision because it feels like a million needles are poking you all over your body. And some of you are going to come up to me after the service. You're going to say, um, Carter, I like that. And I'm going to say, you're insane. So, but what happens is as you get in the hot tub and you jump back in from the snow, you feel the needles all over your body, but eventually you settle in again and your body reacclimates and it feels good. After a little bit of time, you think to yourself, should I try it again? Maybe it's going to be different this time. Maybe I didn't stay long enough in the snow. Maybe I was too long. So you jump back in and guess what? Same result. Million needles all over your body. Here's what happens. Here's why we're going to constantly be celebrating and preaching and upholding the same message of grace through faith in Christ. Is because when you hear it constantly and when you hear it the first time, you begin to get acclimated to it. And when you begin to get acclimated to it, you think, maybe I need to try something different. Let me jump out into the snow. Let me jump out and focus on myself. Let me listen to what culture's preaching me. Try that for a little bit and then come back and it feels like needles. Start to acclimate again. And you're like, maybe I should try it again. Maybe it'll be better this time. See, we need to focus on the good news of the gospel each and every week. We need to be reminded of it day in and day out, Sunday in and Sunday out. And that's what Paul is doing here in this letter to the church in in Galatia, in modern-day Turkey, he's saying, you need to hear the gospel constantly, over and over and over again, because you've distorted it. Martin Luther, who is a pastor and Christian Reformation leader, he has a great quote. Here's what he says. Virtually the whole of the scriptures and the understanding of the whole of theology, the entire Christian life even, depends upon the true understanding of the law and the gospel. All of scripture, all of theology, the, entire of your, the entirety of your Christian faith depends upon your understanding, having a true understanding of the distinction between the law and the gospel. And this is what we're going to unpack tonight. As Paul writes in this letter to the church, as he writes to us, that we need to lose our religion. We need to lose our focus on ourselves and what we bring to the table if you've been with us in this series, you know that throughout this letter, starting in the very beginning of chapter 1, Paul has a thesis statement that he's unpacking, and it's very simple. Here's what the thesis statement is. Faith plus nothing equals salvation. That's what he's driving home. Faith plus nothing equals salvation. In the very beginning of this letter, he says, listen, you guys, the church, you have distorted the gospel. You have begun to follow another gospel because there's this group of people in the church known as Judaizers who were Jews that came to believe in faith in Christ. They claimed that Christ died for them, that he was Savior, that he was buried and resurrected. But they were going around the churches mixing with Gentiles, non-Jews, and here's what they were saying. It's great that you believe in faith in Christ. That's wonderful that you believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior, but that's not enough. It's not faith plus nothing equals salvation. It's faith plus religion 
specifically the Jewish religion. And so you need to begin to observe the right holidays and follow the right customs and eat the right food. And yes, men, if you haven't been circumcised, you need to be circumcised. And the church is beginning to adopt this and saying, well, maybe it isn't just about faith. Maybe it is about my good works. Maybe it is about how religious I am and how Jewish I appear in terms of following certain customs. And Paul writes to them and says, no, 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 no. It's faith plus nothing equals salvation. The beginning of chapter 3, as we saw last week, he brings in the example of Abraham. He says, I want you to see this, so I'm going to take you all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 15, where Abraham and God have this covenant. He says that Abraham was counted as righteous because he believed. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he begins to unpack this, and he's saying, listen, Abraham's a forefather of the faith for Christians and Jews. And if you want to look all the way back to when Abraham was invited into a relationship with God, he was saved and counted as righteous. It had nothing to do with the law. It had nothing to do with his performance or his good works or how religious he appeared. It had to do with the fact that he simply believed. And this is what he's going to really tease out this evening. Here's what he says in verse 15 where we pick up tonight. He says, to give a human example, brothers and sisters, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Here's what he's saying. He's speaking about a last will and testament, your, your will that you would create. He's saying when you create this covenant, this will, it is binding. It's permanent. You create a will and you say, when, when I die, all of my inheritance, all the blessings that I've accumulated are going to go to these people. This is how it's going to work. And once you install that covenant, you sign and you seal it, no one can null it or change it or ratify it. It's permanent. It's binding. And he makes this connection here because he's talking about Abraham. And he's talking specifically about what happens in Genesis chapter 15 with Abraham where God institutes a covenant with Abraham. He's making this comparison because he wants us to see that in the same way that we make a covenant as a last will and testament that's binding and irrevocable and you can't change it, the same is true of the covenant that God makes with Abraham. Here's what happens. Genesis 15 is a wild passage, this whole thing that's taking place in the very beginning of Scripture between God and Abraham. God gives Abraham the conditions by which he's going to create the covenant. He says this, I want you to take some animals and I want you to cut them in half. You're like, whoa, this is getting weird. So he takes animals, cuts them in half, and sacrifices them, and he puts them on either side of a lane. And what's supposed to take place is there's supposed to be two parties that would walk through the animals that have been sacrificed and cut in half, and you'd make an agreement. You'd make a covenant in the middle. This was very common, actually, in the ancient times. If you were going to make a binding, irrevocable covenant between two parties, You'd sacrifice animals, you'd lay them in a lane, and then you'd walk between the dead animals, and you would agree on whatever the conditions of the covenant were. You're like, that's really weird. I'm glad we don't do that anymore. Me too. But here's why that was done. Because it's a sign and a symbol of the seriousness of the covenant. The reason they would kill the animals and separate them is because it was signaling that if anyone broke the covenant... They were deserving of death. What happened to the animals should then happen to them. 
And so it made it binding. You can't change it. Once it's put in place, it's permanent. And so God commands Abraham to cut the animals and he spreads them out. But here's something interesting that happens in the covenant that God makes with Abraham. He tells Abraham not to pass through. Instead, God himself walks through the lane. Typically, both parties would come and meet, but God passes through all on his own. Says he comes through like a smoking pot of fire and, and a pillar of smoke. It's like That sounds really cool and horrifying all at the same time. And he comes through and he makes this agreement, this covenant with Abraham. Very interesting. And the promises that God tells Abraham are all on God's shoulders because he is the only one that passed through. So God is saying that this covenant that I'm going to give to you, Abraham, and to your descendants is on me to fulfill. I'm taking it upon my shoulders. It's binding. It's permanent. It's everlasting. And here are the promises. He says to Abraham, your descendants will be numerous like the stars in the sky. They'll be the family of God. And the second promise is that not only will the family of God be numerous like the stars in the sky, but they'll be blessed by God. They'll receive the blessing of God. And this is what Paul begins to underscore here in verse 16 as he is bringing this in. Look what he says. The promises, those promises of the family of God being numerous and the family of God being blessed by God were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. If you're like me, the first time you read that, you're like, what is being said here? You see, Paul is, he's dissecting ancient language in the Old Testament, and he's saying, listen, let's go all the way back again and look at the language. It's very intentional. It says offspring and not offsprings. Now, the word offspring is a collective noun, which can refer to one or many people, the same way family can refer to one or many people. It's a collective noun. And so he's saying that this being written through the hands of Moses, inspired by God, it was very intentional. Moses could have written offsprings, referring to many people, but he wrote offspring, which refers to one or many. It can be both. The reason he's bringing this up is because what he's going to point to here and what he's saying is that all the way back in the Old Testament, thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, when God instituted this permanent binding covenant with Abraham, these promises that were guaranteed to Abraham and his descendants, Jesus was in view. The true offspring, as he says here, who is Christ. It refers to the descendants, but it's specifically pointing to Jesus where you will find all the promises of these blessings of being included in the family of God and being blessed by God in Christ, the true offspring. Look what he says as he begins to tease this out anymore. He says, this is what I mean in verse 17. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law... It no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. As he's pointing to Christ as the true offspring, saying that Christ was in view all the way back in the Old Testament between this covenant between Abraham and God, he's saying, do you notice the order at which God has installed these covenants? 
They're intentional. The covenant given to Abraham was promised through belief, through faith. As is Christ in view, faith in Christ is the true offspring and fulfillment of that. And it wasn't until later that the law came, that Moses was given the law that was presented to God of how you are to live and how you've been designed. Here's what he's saying. It's, it's really clear. There's a very specific order that God wants us to receive and to understand. And he was very intentional in the way that he laid out his covenants. The chronological order is important. Here's the, here's the, the order. God says, I will. And then he says, later, you will. That's the order. God says, I will. I will do this. As he passes through the covenant between Abraham, I will make your descendants numerous like the stars in the sky. I will bless you and all of those who are included in the family of God. And then later, 430 years later, he gives the law where he says, you will. It's so important to understand that. Why? Because what that means is that everything we do for God is to always be in response to what God has done for us. Everything we do for God is in response to what God has already done for us. It means that your good works cannot produce faith. Your faith produces good works. That's the order. God says, I will, and then you will. So God gives Christ to us, and we receive it through faith, and then we respond later with good works. Everything that we do is in response. But if you're like me, you get that twisted, right? We flip that around so easily because we are constantly told to focus on ourselves. And so we flip the order, and we live often like this is how it goes. God, I will do this, and then you will do this for me. Many of us have, have fallen into the trap of believing that if we're just good enough for God. If we just think to ourselves, hey, God, I will be a good person, and I will work on my goodness, and I will try to get better and better each and every day. And then you will promise me salvation and blessing, right? That's not the order. The, the order is God says, I will do this for you, and then you respond later by living for me. See, so we not only bring that in regards to salvation, but we bring it specifically, and I think all of us struggle with this, in regards to blessing. We want to work for our blessing. We believe somehow that we can manufacture God's blessing by our effort. So we think, God, listen, I'm doing all these things for you. Have you noticed? Therefore, you're entitled now, God, to give me the things that I've been praying for things that I really desire. Because I'm doing this, therefore you have to do this. But that's not the order. In fact, what this order suggests, as Paul presented here, is that every blessing that you've received and every blessing you're going to receive is a gift. You're not entitled to it. It's a gift from God that he gives to you. And then when he gives you the gift that is a blessing, you respond later to that with joy and gratitude and full of hope but we flip it because we want to work for our blessing sadly i think there's a, a trend that's taking place and that is this 
to spiritualize motivational speeches. Motivational speeches are, are popular, and we want to spiritualize them. We want to kind of bring God into the equation because it feels good to feel in control and to feel like we have something to offer and there's something that we can do to manufacture our blessing. And so we switch the order a little bit. And so we preach messages and listen to messages, and maybe we encounter God's word like this. Just do more. As long as you do more for God, then God's going to do more for you. As long as you follow these five steps, God's going to fulfill all of your requests. If you have a problem in your career, a problem in your relationship, if your bank account is lower than you wish it would be, you just need to begin to do these things, and God will show up for you. I was at a conference a few years ago, and I literally heard this. Here's what I was processing as the pastor was preaching. He said, God is in heaven right now, and he's in heaven waiting for you. He's waiting to bless you to bless your life and your family's life. He's waiting to bless Miami. He's just wanting you to call him down. He's wanting you to begin to engage in these three things that we've set out. If you begin to engage in these three things, you begin to call God down, he's going to bless your life and your family's life, and he's going to bless this city. Is that the order? It's not the order that God presents in Scripture. The order is that God says, I will just out of my grace give you salvation, give you Christ, give you blessing. You just have to respond. You are only called to respond. But it makes sense that we get this twisted. One, because we all want to feel like God needs us. Are you there with me? You want to feel like God needs you? You're kind of like you're, you're doing a lot for God. You're like signing up for all the announcements. You're in a community group. You're volunteering in the church. You're helping set up the tent. You're doing everything, right? You're like, God, don't you see what I'm doing? I, I mean, you need me, right? Like, I'm doing a lot, and you know what I've been praying for. So let's transaction here. I'm doing this, or God, are you going to do that? You see, we desire to be needed, but we desire blessing. All of us want to see those adversities in our life be fixed, and we want to reach goals, and we want to accomplish dreams, and that makes sense, and that's good. In fact, your heart is tuned to that. See, our hearts are tuned to heaven. It reverberates within us. We want to encounter God in a way free of sin. We want to be in relationship with each other free of sin. We want to be in a world and exist together where there's no more oppression. There's no more racism. There's no more hate. There's no more violence. There's no more adversity. There's no more tears. There's no more anxiety. It's all gone. We desire that. Our heart is tuned to that. It's reverberating in our soul. And that's good to seek after those things. But just as our heart is tuned to heaven, our heart is also deceitful. And our heart tells us, if you really want those things, you just need to begin doing more for God. You need to look the part, act the part. It's not faith plus nothing equals salvation and blessing. Come on, it's faith plus your good works. It's faith plus how Christian you appear, how religious you are. That will equal salvation and blessing, but that's not the order. The order is that God gives freely out of his grace salvation and blessing, and he invites you to receive it and then just to respond and to rest. When you're struggling with adversity, you're struggling with fear, you feel as if God has abandoned you, he's not. And this frees you to say, I'm gonna rest God and trust that you're in control and that blessing is within your hands, not mine. It's not dependent upon me. 
and I'm going to have faith. It's hard to do, but it's not impossible because it's actually the third promise here that God makes with Abraham that is given to us. The first promise is that God's family, the people of God, will be numerous like the stars in the sky. The second one is that God's family will be blessed by God. And the third is that all of this is received through faith. Abraham received all of these things through faith. It was credited to him as righteousness because he believed, not because of his religious adherence or his good works. And the same is true as for us. That's what Paul says in verse 21 and 22. He says, if the law then contrary to the promises, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ might be given to those who believe. If you have a Bible with you or you're taking notes, underline that last verse. The promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. All of the promises, he's saying, that are found throughout Scripture, including the one that God gives to Abraham in this covenant, they are given by faith in Christ. It is faith plus nothing equals salvation and blessing. You see, when you hear this message, when I preach this message and share this with people, I always get a common response. Here's the common response. Okay, but what about good works? Doesn't it matter how I live? Doesn't it matter what I do? I mean, I mean, can I just like believe and then go do whatever I want? How do those things sync together? Well, it does matter how you live. It does. In fact, the law of God is good. It's God's law. It's his standard. It's the way that he's designed you to live. God says, will you trust me? This is what it means to flourish. This is how you'll find satisfaction. This is how you'll actually exist in a really healthy way. I've outlined it for you. Will you trust me and follow? It does matter how you live. But here's what's so important. The law has nothing to do with your salvation. It has nothing to do with your blessing. It is actually a gift for you to see your need for faith to reveal sin. See, the law has the power to reveal your sin and your inability to follow it, but it does not have the power to save you from sin. Your good works and your religious performance can never save you. That is reserved only for, through Christ. But what happens is we begin to look at the law and our good works and the way that God's called us to live and designed us to live, and, and you recognize something. Because the law always reveals your sin and mine. You begin to feel the weight of it. How many of you feel that? Or you feel like, man, I'm constantly disappointing God. Like, I'm constantly not doing the right thing. I know what I should do and I don't do it. I, I just can't keep, I continue to struggle with the same thing over and over again. And sometimes when we feel that weight, we feel like, man, God has totally forsaken me. There's no way he would bless me because of how I'm living. There's no way he wants anything to do with me until I clean myself up, and then I'll come back to God, and then I'll, I'll feel that blessing and that love and that forgiveness again. We've all been there. It's the beginning point for all of us, and we kind of jump in and out of it. Paul has that in view when he says this in verse 23. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So that's what the law does. It enslaves you. It holds you captive. You feel the weight of it. 
Because as hard as you try to uphold it, you can't ever perfectly follow God's standard, which is perfection. You feel like you're constantly disappointing yourself and others and God. You feel the weight of it. So then, he says, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. He's saying that the law was there as a guide, as a guardian for you, so that you might see that you're actually made right with God through faith and faith alone. See, the law has always been a guide and a guardian for all of us, and some of us are still clinging to that. As I said earlier, where you feel like as long as I keep working at getting better and as long as I'm a good person, then God will save me and assure me the blessings that are mine, but that's not the order. The order is that God will and you receive through faith and then later you respond. One of the things that I think can happen because the law is seductive and we begin to fall after it and begins to guide us as a guardian is that we begin to realize that our faith has become cosmetic, which means that you've, you've kind of acquired all of the spiritual makeup. You got the, you know, you got the Christian eyeliner, you got the lip gloss, you got the pomade, got the cologne, you got it all, you know, which means you go to church when you can, you volunteer when you can, you text it in high to the text number, because I said to, you give a little bit when you're moved, you join a community group when it works with your season, maybe you take notes, maybe you take a lot of notes during the sermon. You got everything, you got all the spiritual makeup to look the part. But what's guiding you to do those things is not joy and response to faith in Christ. It's the law. You feel like you need to uphold a certain standard. You need to look a certain way. You need to present yourself a certain way. It's not really the joy of your faith and the blessing that God's given you through grace. It's the law guiding you and guarding you. I'm not trying to be harsh, but I am trying to challenge what Paul says here, and that's this. Is your faith in Jesus or in your religious behavior? Is your identity your faith in Christ or is it in the good works that you present to others and to God? You see, that's the difference between the law and the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God will and he did. And we respond by seeking to follow after God. We don't flip it the other way around, which is why we need to hear verse 25. We need to repeat this verse 25 and 26 to ourselves all the time. He says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. You have received the greatest blessing which is Christ himself, the true offspring, that all the promises are yours through faith and not through your good works or how religious you appear, how cosmetic your faith looks to others. It is simply through faith the law is no longer a guardian. He ends the chapter by saying this, for as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Look at that last verse, 29. If you are Christ, 
if you put on Christ through faith, as he's been saying time and time again in this letter, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. He's saying all of the promises that were unchangeable and irrevocable and permanent that God made with Abraham, that the children of God, the people of God, the family of God would be numerous like the stars in the sky and that they would be blessed by God through faith, that promise is yours. It is yours and it is unchangeable because of faith in Christ. Remember I said that God instructed Abraham to, to sacrifice the animals and split them in half because it was a binding agreement. It was signed and sealed with blood. You know, the beauty that we claim we celebrate each and every Sunday that we see as the good news of the gospel is that Christ came to install a new covenant. And you notice what Christ is referred to as the sacrificial lamb. The sacrificial lamb that gave his body and broke his body, shed his blood on the cross. Why? As a payment for your sin and as a sign and a symbol that through faith in what he has done for you, the promise of your forgiveness and your acceptance and the blessing of God handed to you is signed and sealed with the death of Christ. God took the weight upon his shoulders and he accomplished it for you. See, my prayer for, for this church, for all of us, is that we would get the order right. That God says to you, I will, and he did. And then you and me would respond with, God, because you did, I will. I'll follow you. That's the order, because that's the gospel. It's good news. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for your grace. Lord, if our salvation and if your blessing was dependent upon our religious performance and our ability to perform good works, we would be out of luck. Lord, we would be feeling so much fear of disappointment because we're incapable of upholding your law. We're incapable of perfection, but Christ, you are perfect for us. We thank you that we receive all of the promises that you have delivered, your inheritance handed over by putting on Christ through faith. Lord, as we navigate all the things of life, our career, our relationships, the stress, the anxiety that we struggle with, would we cling to faith in Christ? Would you not allow us to switch up the order? We know that you have accomplished all for us and we can simply respond that it is faith plus nothing, nothing equals salvation and blessing. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.